Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Thanks, Daniel. Um, I'm not sure how much, how much leading there will be here today, but um, we can wander around in the dark together, perhaps. Um, what we're doing today is wrapping up the preaching series that we've been in called The Way. Um, we um, investigated and looked at a lot of the Sermon on the Mount for a number of weeks, and then following that, we've been on The Way, where Jesus is actually putting into action or interpreting through his actions what he meant when he was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount. So the way is mainly um, taken from stories from chapters 8 and 9 in the book Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to be wrapping that up today. Um, the two chapters include nine different miracle stories. Um, there's three sets of three. Matthew is a very organized person. He used to be a tax collector, so he's used to keeping books and spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. So he organized his gospel in a very um, rigid, well, maybe not rigid, what's the word, a good word, organized way. Um, so three sets of three miracles that he tells about, and then in between those three sets are two different groups of like kind of teachings, a little bit of narrative, a little bit of stories and things about um, what it means to be a disciple and those kinds of things. So um, we've already looked at the first set of miracles, the second set of miracles. We've had the two sets of teachings. Today we'll look at this third set of miracles, three different miracles. So three sets of three. Um, and what I'm going to do is briefly look at this third set and then go back and kind of give us an overview or a summary of the whole series on the way and pick out a couple of themes that kind of run through all of these miracle stories and the teachings of Jesus. And then thirdly, we're going to drill down a little bit um, to tie up some loose ends, if I can mix metaphors there. We'll see if we can throw in some other metaphors to confuse us all. Um, but um, first of all, so let's start with the first part, which is looking at this final set of three miracle stories in chapter 9 of Matthew. Um, and I'd invite you to read along with me this prayer for understanding before we read the scriptures and really get into the sermon here. I think it'll be on the screen. Do we have anything saying, Lord, open our hearts? Didn't get that? Okay, I'll pray it for us, and you can just um, agree in your hearts with me. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. All right, our first uh, miracle story in chapter 9 begins with verse 18. It goes through verses 26. Um, I'll read the first part of it, or actually read those verses to you, and you can follow along on the screen or on your device. Matthew 9, 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. 
Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put out aside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread through all of that district. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we have here one miracle story that's kind of interrupted by another miracle story. And then the narrative goes back to the completion of the first miracle story. It's kind of like an Oreo cookie. It's a sandwich, basically. Um, the ruler knelt before Jesus, coming before Jesus, kneeling before him, which is kind of like acknowledging Jesus's authority to do what he's about to ask him to do. Um, and he um, had faith, obviously, that Jesus could bring his daughter back to life. But as Jesus was going to take care of this little problem, um, a dead daughter, um, this woman in a crowd uh, that was following him reached up and tried to touch his, the, cloak, the edge of his garment. Um, this woman, because of her uh, condition of having a hemorrhage for 12 long years, was ceremonially unclean in Jewish culture. And so therefore, she was not normally part of Jewish society. She'd been exiled from normal social interaction. Um, and even by being in the crowd, she was breaking the rules because she was supposed to stay away from other people during this time. But um, nevertheless, she was desperate enough or maybe hoped in Jesus enough that she wanted to, that she took the risk of finding her way through the crowd to get to Jesus. And the thing was that although people believed that she, that she would contaminate them with her uncleanness, Jesus himself was not worried about that. He was not contaminated by her. In fact, he contaminated her, but with healing and not with disease. And so therefore, he restored her not only to physical health, but also to her ability to interact socially with the rest of her community. Now, this might seem a little bit like some kind of a magic cure, the fact that she could just touch the hem of his garment. Um, but it wasn't really um, a magic trick that happened when he, she touched uh, his, his cloak. Um, and in fact, not even um, was it her faith, per se, that healed her. It was Jesus himself. Jesus is the source of these healings in all throughout chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. Um, her faith in him was key, definitely, for it motivated her to reach out to him, to seek him out and reach out to him and touch him. But again, it's Jesus himself who is the source of the healing, not her faith, not her magic, not his magic touch or whatever that might be. So um, go away from that story, get back to the first story. When Jesus arrives at the house of the dead girl, he takes her hand again, which is a no-no in Jesus in Jewish society, because you're not supposed to touch a dead person. Um, if you do, you have to go through a big rigmarole to become ceremonially clean again and able to interact with people. 
Um, but Jesus ignored this rule, just like he did a number of other rules. And um, he healed the girl. Well, actually, he didn't heal her. He brought her back to life, um, much to the joy of and the astonishment of the, the official mourners who had already gathered to mourn her death. So that's a quick synopsis of the first miracle story. Um, the second miracle story in chapter 9 is two blind men. And I'll read that story to you, um, and you can follow along chapter 9, verses 27 to 31. As Jesus went from there, the, the place where he had raised the girl uh, to life again, two men, two blind men followed him, crying loudly, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you have faith that I can do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, and he said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. And then Jesus sternly ordered them, See that no one knows of this. But they went away and spread the news about him through all of that district. Now, one thing to notice from this little story is that the blind men were calling Jesus Son of David. That's a distinctly messianic term. Uh, referring back to the line of David, the king, great King David. Um, and it indicates that they recognized in Jesus some sort of kingly authority. Um, it would be the authority that a king of Israel would carry. It's a very Jewish way of saying that the same authority that the Roman centurion um, earlier in chapter 8 had said, he recognized in Jesus there was an authority here in Jesus. Um, and when Jesus completed his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the people said, we haven't heard anybody teach with this kind of authority before. So this is one of the themes that runs through this whole section of scripture here. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's what the Roman centurion said in chapter 8. Here, the two blind men say, call Jesus son of David. Again, acknowledging the fact that he has some kind of special royal authority to do this. And then in response to the blind men, Jesus said to them, according to your faith, let it be done to you which is the very words that he spoke to uh, the woman or to the centurion in 8.13. The servant had been healed. And it's also similar to the words that he said to the woman with the hemorrhage, the 12-year 12 12 year long hemorrhage. So somehow healing is connected to a person's faith. That's one of the loose ends that we'll come back to later, okay? So the third miracle story in chapter 9 here. It's in verse, starts in verse 32, and it's a very brief two, two verses. Um, Matthew is very succinct when he talks about this one. So beginning with verse 32. After they had gone away, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke. And the crowds were amazed and said, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying... By the ruler of the demons, he's casting out demons. Now, again, like I said, these, the details in this story are very sparse, um, especially regarding anything that Jesus actually said. There's no words of Jesus mentioned here or quoted here. Nothing is mentioned about how he cast out the demon that caused the man to be able, unable, unable to speak. It doesn't say what the formerly mute man said when he had been healed. It just says that he spoke. The focus here seems to be on two groups of people and their reaction to this miracle, this healing miracle. 
One, the crowds who were amazed, which again is a recurring theme when Jesus, when Jesus does some kind of mighty deed or miracle kind of thing. There's amazement at the uniqueness of Jesus's works. And on the other hand, there's the Pharisees, the religious leaders who specialized in following the codes and the laws for holy living. They reacted to Jesus's mighty works by accusing him of being empowered by the prince of demons. And in some versions of the Bible, it'll say Beelzebub, which is a Jewish uh, Hebrew word or a Greek word for a Hebrew word that means prince of demons or prince of devils. They were accusing him of getting his power from some sort of evil source. Um, prince of demons, Beelzebub, in the book of Revelation, it's called the beast. Um, whatever nomenclature you want to tack onto that, it's in some sort of evil force that Jesus is getting his power from, according to the Pharisees. Um, so they're condemning him basically by association, connecting, trying to connect him with some sort of evil power in the universe, rather than some sort of kingly authority that the other people had recognized in Jesus. So we'll find, we, we find in here kind of a repetition of some other themes and ideas that we've seen throughout chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9. And um, Daniel has talked about uh, the idea of faith. Uh, I think Grace talked about the, the cost of discipleship that Jesus taught about. Um, Bob was teaching us about um, what it meant to be forgiven and what the connection between sin and healing was. Um, but here are three signposts, I'm going to call them, kind of along the way that we've been talking about. Three main themes that kind of run through these stories. The first one is authority. Um, in chapter 8, the person who had leprosy or has some kind of skin disease, he uh, immediately recognizes Jesus' authority. He kneels before him, calls him Lord, um, and he acknowledges that Jesus is free to heal him or not, depending on what Jesus himself chose to do. So he's recognizing Jesus' authority to do this. In the story of the healing of the centurion's servant, we again find that same idea. The centurion recognized that Jesus was a person of authority just as he was. He could order his soldiers to do whatever, or his servants, and he recognized in Jesus had that same kind of authority, but it was not over soldiers or servants, it was over sickness and sin. So these kinds of things um, are part of the theme, one of the themes. I've already mentioned about how the two blind men called Jesus son of David. Again, that's a recognition of Jesus' authority. Um, and so this personal power and authority that Jesus had um, came to him from some other source. Jesus would point to his father, um, to God, as being the source of his power. Um, but what upset the Pharisees, why they would call him the son of the prince of devils, was the fact that he didn't go through the right channels. He didn't go through the priests or go to the temple to do these kinds of healings. Um, he didn't consult with them about how to do it. He just did it. He just touched a leper and healed him. He had visit physical contact with the bleeding woman, the dead girl. All of these physical touches and physical contacts were not part of the rigmarole that you went through to heal someone in the Jewish um, law. He went outside these traditional channels of propriety and tradition, which is a key element of these healings and other mighty works. Jesus was a challenge or even a threat, you might say, to the status quo. And they were rejecting that. They were resisting that. 
Um, Jesus acted without official sanction, and the fact that he was casting out demons because he was in league with demons was just another example of how they were pushing back. The, the religious authorities were pushing back against the way Jesus did things. Now, even back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had kind of laid the groundwork for this kind of um, going outside the normal things. Remember, several of his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, you've heard it said such and such, but I say to you something else. So he was just enacting here in chapters 8 and 9 what he'd already told them, what he'd already told his disciples and the people who heard him um, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when the Bible talks about uh, authority, usually it's referring to God's sovereignty, God's control, God's power, God's creative energy over everything. And so by exercising this authority in healing people and doing these other mighty works, stilling the storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is exercising his authority and actually demonstrating or pointing back to God's sovereignty over everything. Jesus' authority lies in his mission to bring this renewal that God wants to bring about through all of creation, including physical illness, as well as natural causes or natural events. So authority is one of our signposts, one of the themes that runs through these chapters. Second one is the idea about faith. Faith is somehow connected to Jesus' mighty works. Um, Jesus praises the faith of the Roman centurion, even though he was a pagan, um, not even connect, closely connect, connected to the Jewish religion. He recognized Jesus' authority, and he had faith that Jesus could heal his servant. That surprised Jesus, and it amazed him. Um, but Jesus praised the fact that this Roman centurion had this kind of faith. Um, he thought it was enough to qualify this Roman centurion to eat dinner with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on that great feast day that will come um, at the final day when the kingdom of heaven arrives in its fullness. And remember on the, during, when the storm came up on the Sea of Galilee, he kind of chided or scolded his disciples for not having enough faith. He said, you of little faith, you, you didn't trust me. You didn't trust the fact that I would keep you safe. Um, the faith of the centurion, the woman with the hemorrhage, the two blind men, all these people had faith, and this faith was factors in their restoration to health and to social interaction, to community, basically. So, or even early on in these early chapters of Matthew and early in Jesus' ministry, he's dropping hints that the kingdom of God went beyond the traditional borders of Israel. It extended to Roman centurions, to people who were ceremonially unclean, to people who weren't normal, part of normal, you know, upper class or even middle class Jewish society. The new family of God is defined in terms of faith or loyalty to him, to himself. It's not some kind of genealogical connection or ethnic identity or observing rules or having the proper behavior. It has more to do with your faith. So that's our second signpost. Third signpost is the actual act of healing. Lots of healing stories in these chapters. All of them are important. The leper who was um, healed, the two blind men, the person who was paralyzed, the bleeding woman, someone who was demon-possessed, all of these were considered outcasts. They were blemished somehow. And so in Jewish society, they had uh, certain connections with their community broken or um, held off at arm's length at least. They weren't allowed to worship as the other people did in the temple or in the synagogue. 
They were often estranged from the normal life of their community. And in the case of leprosy and contagious illnesses, uh, they were completely cut off from human contact. They couldn't associate with anybody else except for other lepers or people with other diseases like that. But Jesus didn't only heal them from their physical maladies, he also gave them back their lives as full members in the community. It was a gift of shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace, but it's a holistic kind of peace where you have all of your relationships that are in good shape, relationship with God, with each other, with creation. That's what shalom means, the wholeness, a correct or right relationships with each other. So that's our third signpost. Now I want to come back and tie up some loose ends, some of that will overlap with some of these signposts that we've just um, identified. Um, and it, hopefully it doesn't seem like we're getting too far into the weeds, but again, if you're on a journey and you set off on a heading that's two degrees off of correct heading, um, at first it won't make much difference, but the farther you go on your journey, the farther you're going to be from your desired destination. So it's important that we make some fine distinctions um, on some of these issues. Um, first one has to do with the whole concept of miracle. Uh, what is a miracle in the Bible? Um, a Bible miracle is, at least in these chapters here, is more along the lines of it gives us a preview of what life in the kingdom is like uh, rather than some kind of proof of Jesus' divinity or some other kind of um, unnatural or unexpected kind of uh, phenomenon. So a miracle, a definition, a good dictionary definition, is that it's an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Or you, we could say supernatural intervention in human affairs. So the very word miracle uh, to us in our culture, um, as well as these ideas of what's natural and what's supernatural, that reflects our modern worldview, uh, not necessarily the, the biblical worldview. Um, our worldview assumes there's some other world or reality apart from ours, and sometimes it intersects with ours. Um, think maybe of like Superman or E.T. Those would be good examples of something alien coming into our world and changing it up and having some kind of an effect. Um, did we get, yeah, oh, Superman, E.T. My daughter was scared to death of E.T. and hates that movie to this day, and she's almost, well, she's in her 30s. So anyway, <laughs> that's a good scary picture of him too. Um, but Superman or E.T., either one um, kind of exemplifies for us what kind of the, the idea, the thinking behind what we think of when we think of miracles. Something uh, unnatural or supernatural that invades our world for either good or for bad um, kind of things. Um, to our way of thinking, a miracle is something that intervenes, interferes um, above, from above and beyond our world, which is very different from what the first century Galileans would have thought, or even the writers of the Greek New Testament. Um, in fact, there is no Greek word that really translate in, translates properly into our English word miracle. Um, I want to take a look at four words that the Greek people did use and are in, found in the Bible. One is called paradoxa, which is where we get our word paradox, right? Means things not normally expected. That's one Greek word that's often used to, do, to describe some of the things that Jesus did. Another word is dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. It refers to a display of power or authority. Um, a third term is tarata, 
or maybe in other words, Samea, which is uh, a word that translates as a sign or a portent or a um, prediction or maybe foreshadowing kind of thing. And then the third or the fourth um, word, Greek word, is thamasia, which has to do with something that's marvelous or awesome. So these are the four different kinds of Greek words that are used to describe something that Jesus did, but none of them equal exactly what we think of when we use the word miracle. Again, thinking of something coming from another world to intervene or interfere in our world. Um, the works that Jesus did might have been un unanticipated or unexpected, but they weren't alien. You can see that they enabled the created order to become what it was supposed to be, restoring health to someone. It wasn't forcing on them some kind of new identity or some kind of essence. It was just restoring them to what they were supposed to be. The stilling of the storm brought peace and calm back to the lake or to the sea. It wasn't something that was imposed from without. It was all actually natural as in the way it was created to be. So when we start thinking of divine miracles, biblical miracles, as something that proves or demonstrates Jesus' divinity, I think we're barking up the wrong tree, perhaps. Um, Jesus' divinity is not the focus of his miracles or his, I'm going to start calling them mighty deeds, okay, since we don't want to use that word miracle anymore, right? Um, so here's why we can say that. When we look in the New Testament, the strongest claims for Jesus' divinity are found not in the Gospels, but in Paul's writings and some of the other writings of the later um, apostles and disciples. Um, they make no men, and in th those arguments, Paul is talking about um, Jesus' divinity, but he doesn't refer back to these mighty works that Jesus did. He said that's, he's not using that as his basis for claiming Jesus' divine uh, relationship with God. He uses other categories, other words, other examples. And another reason is that when we do read the Gospels, like we've just been doing, these mighty works weren't intended to be proofs of Jesus' div divinity. Now, it's true that Jesus was viewed by everyone, his, his friends, his supporters, his followers, as well as his enemies. Um, he had remarkable powers. But there's lots of stories from that time period outside of the Bible of people that were wonder workers or miracle workers in this time of history. But Jesus wasn't just another miracle max um, that had some kind of a special pill that would heal people or whatever. He wasn't the miracle max of ancient Roman Palestine. What set him apart from these other miracle workers, um, we have to ask, what was Jesus intending to do? And why was he wanting to do that? And what did his mighty works mean to the people that he healed, to the people around him, the people who became his followers? Well, we think that Jesus' followers would have seen his mighty works in the context of his overall proclamation of the kingdom of God. What he did in chapters 8 and 9 are tied to what he said in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. What he taught and what he did are all part of one whole type of ministry, and that is bringing God's kingdom to bear on our, king, our world, our lives. They weren't stand standalone magic tricks or power plays. They were demonstrations of the kingdom of God at work in the world that God created. They were kind of previews and examples of what God will do when all of creation is restored to its original condition. That was Jesus, that's God's mission, and Jesus was proclaiming it and actually acting it out. Um, they go hand in glove with Jesus' proclamation of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. So, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' verbal, 
explanation of the kingdom of God. And these powerful deeds or these mighty works were the demonstration or the object lessons of what the kingdom in action really looks like. So we, it's, again, um, acting out, describing what we read about in the book of Revelation, where it describes a place where death and disease are not, a place where fear and chaos are non-existent, where all people, regardless of their position or power or their origin, are welcome to join in the heavenly feast hosted by the king himself. So that's one loose end, this idea of what a miracle is. Second loose end has to do with the signpost of faith that we talked about. Now remember, Jesus praised the centurion's faith. He said that his servant would be healed according to his faith. Um, he said the same thing to the two blind men. You'll be healed according to your faith. Um, he told the bleeding woman that her faith made her well. But we need to be careful to understand what Jesus meant or what Jesus' definition of faith is. Um, Jesus' words that healing would be done according to your faith don't really necessarily refer to the quality of one's faith or the quantity of your faith, of it, as if you can quantify and measure and weigh faith. Um, like uh, maybe if you have a little bit of faith, you might get just a little bit better. But if you have full faith, then you'll get completely healed. That's not that kind of relationship, not that kind of definition of faith. The kingdom of God, um, it's neither is it, um, I mean to back up my words, uh, my notes here. Um, they don't they refer to the quality or the quantity of your faith. Um, and neither is Jesus working from a definition of faith where um, we just believe in God's capacity or ability to, to heal or do something marvelous. Um, yes, God is all-powerful, but faith that says, if you believe it, it will happen, and if you believe it strong enough, it will really happen, um, that's more suitable to a Hallmark or a Disney movie um, rather than the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is not the same as the magic kingdom. What Jesus meant was that one's faith has to be suitable or in line with or um, working meshes with the mission of God in um, Jesus' mission as well. Um, the centurion, for example, although he was this pagan military officer, um, he believed somehow that God was acting climactically through Jesus to bring about a new way of living, a new way of being in the world. So that was why Jesus was so amazed that this kind of expression of, of trust or faith in him would come from this pagan centurion. Um, for Jesus, faith is a thing that marks out the true people of God at a time of crisis or judgment or sickness um, and illness. It's a time of rejecting idols and trusting in the one and true and living God, trusting in what Jesus was saying and trusting in him. So like the disciples, remember Jesus scolded them for needing to have more faith or that the, scolding them for not having uh, little, for having little faith. Um, we might feel a need to strengthen or increase or deepen our faith. Um, that doesn't mean we crank up our emotions or our passion up to 11. Um, faith can't be increased or decreased. Um, I appreciated what Daniel said about faith is not a commodity. It's not a thing. It's a quality of relationship and uh, call it a, an expression of trust in someone or something. Um, 
And it doesn't mean, increasing our faith doesn't mean that um, we find something else that's even more outlandish or more unbelievable or irrational that would dominate our thoughts and our actions. Our faith grows when we submit ourselves more and more to Christ's authority over our lives because we trust Him. We have faith in Him. Um, and the submission to Jesus's will for our lives is the kind that Jesus modeled when he was washing his disciples' feet. It's a submission to serve. It's a submission to love. It's a submission to Jesus's uh, example and commands to love each other, love one another as we love ourselves. So this is where this loose end kind of is still kind of raggedy a little bit um, because we have so many idols that are competing for our loyalty, um, materialism or hedonism, egotism, racism, nationalism, lots of isms you can throw on there. The question is, what, to what degree do we acknowledge Jesus' authority over our lives? How much do we look to Christ to guide and lead and control our lives, um, our daily decisions and actions? The answer to those questions can maybe point out just how strong our faith might be. Okay, the last loose end. Um, <clears throat> it's a little more difficult um, because it relates to Jesus' healing ministry as well. In Article 14 of our Articles of Faith in the Church of the Nazarene, we state, we believe in the biblical doctrine of divine healing and urge our people to offer the prayer of faith for the healing of the sick. We also believe that God heals through the means of medical science. And many of us probably have stories and examples of severely sick people who were miraculously healed. Um, and that's good. Um, but you don't have to be very old to also have experienced the continued illness or even the death of someone for whom we have prayed um, for their healing, someone who is not healed, which leads us to, that's why this is a loose end that keeps flapping in the wind. There's, it leads us to complicated reasonings and maybe some rationalizations at times. Um, one common explanation is that someone lacked faith. Um, that's why they weren't healed. But um, even the most heartfelt fervency of our faith is not the determining factor in our healing. If it were, then my sister-in-law Carrie would not have suffered and died from some rare appendix cancer years ago. Um, my college buddy Stephen would still be alive because he had hundreds of people praying for his healing, but the lymphoma would not go away. And I suspect you have your own version of these kinds of disappointments or confusing kinds of um, appeals to God to, to, pray, to pray a prayer of faith for someone's healing. Um, so it keeps, it keeps bothering me. I don't know about you, but it bothers me. So I want to address it or try to think about it a little bit more. Um, in Matthew 8, 16, there's a kind of a summary statement that kind of summarizes this first set of those th the first three healing stories that are in this section. Uh, it reads this way. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and cured all who were sick. That's at the beginning of this section. At the very end of this section, in Matthew, or in Matthew 9, 35, um, Matthew closes or summarizes this whole set of miracle stories, healing stories, by stating, 
Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. Now these statements, they might be hyperbolic. Maybe Jesus didn't heal literally every sick person. Um, if that's the case, then we would wonder, well, why didn't Jesus heal all of the sick people? He obviously had the power and the authority to do that. Or maybe he did heal everyone in the whole countryside. If so, then our question is, why doesn't Jesus heal today like he did back then? Well, I struggle with these questions, as you've gathered, and I probably will continue to struggle. However, the dilemma might, might be eased a bit if we look at Jesus' healing through a, another lens rather than just the lens of physical healing. And, um, and that lens would be the kingdom of God. Again, remembering what this whole section of Scripture is doing, Jesus is enacting what the kingdom of God looks like after he's proclaimed or taught what it would look like in the Sermon on the Mount. So what if we focus less on what Jesus did or how he did it and looked instead at who Jesus healed? Let's list the people real quick. In chapter 8, there's a man with leprosy. There's the servant of the Roman centurion. There's Peter's mother-in-law. There's two demon-possessed men living among the dead in the town cemetery. And then in chapter 9, there, Jesus raised the dead daughter of a community leader. We just read about that today. The woman who was ostracized by her persistent hemorrhaging. The two blind men and then the man who was possessed and, and mute. Um, all but a few of these people were struggling not only with the effects of their sickness, but they were also living outside the community of faith. They had been ostracized, put aside, kept away. And generally speaking, women in Jewish society and anyone with certain diseases, especially those who, and especially those who came in contact with dead people or people with diseases, um, all of those people, that was a category of people that did, were not allowed to have the full prerogatives and benefits of full membership in the kingdom of God, in the people of God. They were outcasts or on the fringes of the community of faith. So, by healing these people of their physical problems, which he definitely did, Jesus also restored these unclean people to bodily health and back into social membership with God's people. So the healing served the same purpose as Jesus' welcome of, and fellowship with sinners, like the story we read about in chapter, I think it's in chapter 9, when he called the tax collector, Matthew, the hated collaborator with Rome. And then that night he had a meal. He sat down to a meal with Matthew's sinner friends. Um, it's the same group of people that Jesus is ministering to and with and fellowshipping with and healing. So the ceremonially unclean, the impure because of some disease, they have the same problems and needs as those sinners that sat down with, at Matthew's table. They were considered to be the lowlifes of Jewish society. Um, a, but the, what they were needing was a community of people where they could find identity and meeting and fellowship and connection through belonging and serving together. In other words, shalom. And perhaps maybe that's the same needs that we have today. So maybe if we look at these healing stories in Matthew 8 and 9, they might be for us a signal that the kingdom of God is about belonging and becoming a participant in God's kingdom, God's mission of renewal for all of creation. And understanding that big picture and the story of stories of Jesus's mighty works then take on a slightly different hue or a slightly different meaning for us. 
they provide a way to shape our expectations for what healing means in line with the priorities of the kingdom of God. So if we think about belonging, we have to ask ourselves, who welcomes us? Who accepts us reservedly and without condition? And maybe ask ourselves, how well do we welcome other people? How do well do we accept the stranger or the outcast or the socially disenfranchised? Well, that's what King, God's kingdom is about. It's about including those people, um, welcoming them, um, transforming their lives. And I guess maybe we could put ourselves in that category as well, shouldn't we? If God's kingdom is about the renewal and the reconciliation of all of creation, and by extension, all people, then we who have faith in Christ and accept his authority over our lives, recognize that we belong to a community um, that is united by the Holy Spirit. God's appointed means of receiving the grace that unites us all in this community is the sacrament of communion. So I think it's gonna pro be proper for us to receive communion today as a reminder um, to us of to whom we belong and who we belong with or alongside of each other. Um, communion is also a means for us giving thanks to God for accepting us into God's family. Our communion liturgy this morning is going to be a little bit different than the one we normally use, uh, maybe more unconventional, because it's the lyrics to a song called Dumpster Divers. Um, but I think that, that name, that title, probably describes the people that we've been talking about here, the people who are wel Jesus welcomes into fellowship with, who he heals, restores to community. Um, it's those people who we would consider to be dumpster divers. But it is true to Jesus' mission to bring all things and all people back into the Father's kingdom. So allow me to read this, and if you'd like to read along, it's uh, printed in your um, worship folder there as well. But I'll, I'm just going to read this as our liturgy leading us into communion today. Come now and join the feast from the greatest to the very least. Come now and join the feast right here in the belly of the beast. Rich people, get rid of your stuff. Poor people, there will be enough. Cops and soldiers, you can come too. Lay down your guns and come on through. Mighty ones, come down from your thrones. Little ones, you will not be alone. Come on, patriots, bring your flags. We're washing feet and we're going to need some rags. Come now and join the feast from the greatest to the very least. Come now and join the feast, right here in the belly of the beast. Kings and queens, smash your crowns. The king has taken kinghood down. Religious people, let go of your rules. Let sinners serve you some food. Lazy man, step up to the table. Make some food for those who aren't able. Make sure everyone gets some. Then we'll see the kingdom. Pretty winner, swallow your pride. Drink the ugly loser, for who for all died. Make sure everyone gets some. Then we'll see the kingdom.